Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. Thanks for joining me in this first episode of the Tea History Podcast. In looking back on the last six years since I presented that Tea History series and thinking about all the places tea has taken me, the people I've met along the way and who have taught me so much, I can really understand why tea is called, among other things, a social beverage. Humankind was gifted with three great natural beverages, cocoa, coffee, and tea. If you don't include the air we breathe and the water we drink, nothing on earth is consumed in greater quantities than tea. Tea wasn't the first of these so-called three great temperance beverages to arrive in Europe. Cocoa came in 1528, brought there by the great world superpower of the day, España. Spanish brought it from the New World after the Aztec conquest in 1521. Next up was tea in 1610. Thanks to all Nederlanders for that. Then, five years later, in 1615, Venetian traders were credited with bringing coffee to Europe from Constantinople. Tea became the first global commodity shipped to markets on six continents. Its history, undeniably, began in Asia. The Golden Triangle region, associated in the 20th century with narcotic drugs, was also where the original tea garden was. Tea trees have been around for more than 50 million years. One of the early experts, very much admired in his day and revered by many, on all things tea, that is, was William Euchers, whose magnum opus, All About Tea, published in 1935, said, quote, The original jungles where tea trees grew wild were found in the Shan states of Thailand and East Burma, Yunnan, northern Vietnam, and India. Before all got divided up into nations, it was all one big primeval tea garden. Soil, climate, rainfall, everything was perfect to propagate the species. End quote. Wherever it was, Yunnan, Sichuan, or wherever, the one indisputable historical truth that has made it down to our day is that it was China who acted as the Yuntou, the, the fountainhead from whence tea as we know it came into this world. We'll look at this in more detail much later on, but one thing that's not common knowledge but pretty amazing is that no matter where in the world tea is grown or how it is processed into the darkest, maltiest Assam black tea mixed with milk and sugar or the most subtle-tasting white tea using the freshest buds picked before the spring rains in early April selling for a thousand euros per hundred grams, all tea comes from the same plant. Camellia sinensis. Camellia sinensis is either a tall tree, a small tree of three to five meters, or most often, as we've seen before in all those gorgeous photos of tea plantations, a dome-shaped bush of one and a half to three meters high. If you just leave them alone and let them grow wild, a tea tree can grow as high as 30 feet. In the original tea garden stretching from Sichuan, Yunnan, and into the region where Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar all come together, there are tea trees hundreds and even thousands of years old, spread out over 200 or so forest areas. The problem with tea trees is that you had to climb them to get to the branches where all the tea leaves were. In time, most were all cut down and replaced instead with tea bushes that were much more efficient and much less laborious to cultivate. 
Then, according to the long centuries of accumulated lessons learned through trial and error, the tea story unfolds. You'll see. From the earliest times, practically all the way into the Tang Dynasty, 7th to 9th centuries, more or less, the kind of tea that was drunk by the ancients probably wouldn't be as popular as it is in our day. A good couple thousand years of time passed before the most ancient evenings of China in the Shang and Zhou Bronze Age dynasties to the time in the 7th century when the Tang Dynasty was established, 618, that tea started to taste good. Let me read some of the fine print that goes with all that sweeping and fantastical botanical claims about all tea leaves being the same. Well, all tea comes from one single species, true, but you have multiple varieties depending on what part of the original tea garden the plant came from. Though the number of cultivars and varietals abound, basically, if you told me to narrow it down to just three, you have the tea leaves that come from the China bush, the Assam bush, and the Java bush. And the Java bush, known as Camellia sinensis Cambodi, was a transplant of the Assam bush to Java in Indonesia. So really, there's the China and Assam bushes, both a variety of Camellia sinensis. The leaves of the China bush are smaller than the Assam bush, and the China bush can live much longer and can thrive in colder weather. The Assam bush has larger and softer leaves and is a little less hardy than the Chinese varietal and grows best in subtropical regions where there's lots of rain. They're the same, but not the same. The word varietal is usually associated with wine grapes, but it's also used in the botanical world as well. The word cultivar is used more often in the tea world. The word was coined by the American horticulturalist and botanist Liberty Hyde Bailey. Cultivar comes from a combination of the terms cultivated variety. That is to say, it isn't a wild plant. It was cultivated. This is something that was applied to the Camellia sinensis plant throughout Chinese history and is the main reason why you'll hear about there being thousands of different cultivars of the tea plant. In doing this, it allows tea bushes to thrive in very particular areas. Back in 1753, Sweden's great botanist, Carl Linnaeus, published Species Plantarum, the groundbreaking work that gave us the whole scientific nomenclature we still use today. Plant hunters were the Indiana Joneses of their day. They would traverse the world, bring samples back, and Linnaeus and those who followed him would classify everything. Before it was Camellia sinensis, the tea plant was initially classified by Linnaeus as Tea sinensis. In fact, he classified it further as Tea veridis for green tea and Tea bohe for black. No one in Linnaeus's time knew the big secret that green and black tea came from the same bush. The genus for tea was later renamed as part of the Camellia family. There are over 200 species and thousands of cultivars from this Camellia family of evergreens. So tea trees and plants had always been around from pre-recorded history's earliest days, but the secrets of the leaf remained undiscovered. It took someone to have that first aha moment, when after consuming these particular leaves, they caught that first buzz or moment of pleasure. But it wasn't enough simply to be 
cognizant of the sensation, someone also had to pass the word around the forest and let others know about this beverage. And then these others would in turn pass this information on even further, maybe to more distant lands. Even the most bitter tea was cause for ripples of excitement to spread through the hills, valleys, and forests of Southeast Asia. Back in those Neolithic days, there were great discoveries being made every day in the forests, along the rivers, on the plains, and the mountains, and wherever humans were congregating. Sometimes word spread of certain discoveries. Sometimes the chance discovery was made but didn't get propagated, and humankind would have to wait another thousand years to rediscover it. As we'll see from the earliest mentions about tea, the Chinese had already noticed from the start that these tea leaves, when boiled in water, perked you up a bit. Historians for a thousand years and more have combed through documents searching for the earliest references of the Camellia sinensis plant. Prior to 2016, all we had to go on was a copy of a document called the Tongyue, a contract with a servant. And listed among the various terms of this contract, it noted tea utensils and called for someone to go down to Chengdu, capital of Sichuan, and to secure a servant who would perform an itemized list of services, and among the tasks requested of this servant to perform involved buying, brewing, and serving tea. Furthermore, this document, credited to a certain Wang Bao, mentioned the town of Wuyang in Sichuan province, not far from Chengdu. This is where China's oldest known central tea market was located. So all the way up to very recently... A reliable record of tea's existence in China only went back as far as 59 BCE, 2,080 years ago. But it was only five years ago, in 2016, that Chinese archaeologists combing through the tomb of Emperor Jing of Han, Han Jingdi, they found the earliest traces of tea leaves. Emperor Jing reigned from 157 to 141 BCE, which means this tea they found was more than 2,100 years old and predated the mention of tea in that Tongyue contract. Here were actual tea leaves, well-aged indeed. So although we're pretty sure tea was around even longer than 2,100 years ago, we now have archaeological evidence that proves it was at least as far back as the 4th Han Emperor Jing, father of the great Han Wu Di, that we can accurately point to tea's existence in China. So before tea became known as cha in Mandarin, it went through several name changes. Before there was cha, there were five other names for tea, jia, Tu, Chuan, She, and Ming. The patron saint, whose life and work we'll look at in later episodes, was Lu Yu. He lived during the heyday of the Tang Dynasty. His great work was the Cha Jing, or the classic of tea. For now, I just want to briefly mention him. Lu Yu was sort of, well, if I may, the Elvis of Wenren, or literary people, who wrote about tea. From the time of Lu Yu and the Cha Jing, all the way into our present day, there have been many other great tea treatises, guides, and studies that followed. But Chinese have always put Lu Yu in a class by himself. He was the king, the Cha Sheng, the tea saint. Again, for such a figure as Lu Yu and the great impact he had on tea, I've dedicated a whole episode to him. So stay tuned for that when we get to the Tang Dynasty. 
But T goes way back much further than Lu Yu in the Tang Dynasty. How far back, you might be wondering? Well, it was way before Chinese recorded history began. This involves the legend of Shen Nong. Lu Yu said Shen Nong, the divine farmer, among other names. He was the one who discovered tea. If you believe the myth, it all started in the 2700s BCE. In less than 200 years, there would be an army of workers and artisans commencing their work on the Great Pyramid in Giza. This was also the age of cuneiform writing and the Fertile Crescent, modern-day Iraq and Syria. This was also the time when Stonehenge was built. Well, over in China, presumably somewhere along the Yellow River, there was Shennong, the second of the three sovereigns I mentioned. In Chinese folk culture, he's about as big as you can get. I mean, he's graced the covers of a lot of calendars over the millennia. Shennong, Fuxi, the Yellow Emperor... That's the holy trinity of China's most ancient mythical rulers, or sovereigns. Chinese folk tradition mentioned from the earliest times that it was Shennong who first noticed that tea leaves brewed in hot water gave you a buzz. The Incas of the 6th century figured out the same thing from chewing coca leaves. And so it may have been with tea leaves in China. It was probably someone chewing on the leaves who noticed that first mini jolt rather than the Shannong version of the story. But let's tell it anyway. What is there to say about Shannong? He brought agriculture to China. He's the father of Chinese medicine and left behind a magnificent work called the Shannong Ban Cao Jing, the Divine Farmer's Materia Medica, or simply the Shannong Herbal. This great work, well, who knows who compiled it? It probably came out around the time of the Three Kingdoms period, 3rd century CE. It was a collection of what everyone knew up to that point about plants, agriculture, and medicine. Shennong is also credited with inventing the Chinese calendar. <laughs> I mean, he's big. Shennong also brought us the secrets of tea. How did he do such a thing? Well, there's multiple versions, the most famous of which I will tell. Now, the reason Shennong was able to write himself into the history books was mainly due to his willingness to stick his neck out and try out different plants and herbs to test their effects on his body. As anyone who saw the 2007 movie directed by Sean Penn called Into the Wild, doing this kind of thing is risky and life-threatening, to say the least. But through trial and error and some good fortune, Shennong compiled quite a long list of herbal remedies that did wonders for a multitude of ailments and afflictions of the day. There's the story of Shennong tasting a hundred plants. This came straight from Lu Yu. Shennong was out walking one day and decided to sit down and rest. So tired and thirsty was he from all his work, so he boiled some water in his pot. This is what people did back then. The Chinese figured that one out very early. Boil the water first, get sick and die less often. So Shennong was boiling his water when, lo and behold, several leaves from the tea tree he was sitting under blew into his cup. Now, of course, as far back as Shennong's day, it was a tea tree and not a bush. Since no one had discovered tea yet, the trees were all lush and wild and growing everywhere in China's southwest, where... Shennong was wandering at the time. Shennong no doubt took these leaves falling into his pot as a good sign and tasted that natural brew, quenched his thirst, gave him a nice pick-me-up, and left him feeling all refreshed. 
Another story about Shannong goes, and, and this is a variation of the Shannong tasting a hundred plants and herbs tale, uh, that when Shannong tried those hundred plants, 72 of them turned out to be toxic. And as he lay on the ground after ingesting some poisonous shrub or fruit, possibly dying and knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, you know what happened next. Some tea leaves from a nearby tea tree blew off the branches and landed right within reach of the divine farmer. He consumed these leaves, and suddenly he was feeling tip-top shape. So Shannong grabbed a basket and plucked and gathered as many of these leaves as he could carry. He consumed more of them, and slowly all the poisons from the six dozen kinds of toxic flora he tested were all purged from his body. So Shannong did a lot of research into this and passed this good word on to all the people in the land. And as far as Lu Yu is concerned, we all have Shannong to thank for enlightening the world about the health benefits derived from tea. There's also another story that says Shandong discovered tea when he came upon a burning tea bush and noticed the fragrance of the burning and roasting leaves. It grabbed his attention, and in no time at all, he learned how to get this type of bush to yield its magical elixir. Shandong, being a folk god extraordinaire, so to speak, has about a million other legends and stories associated with him, depending on which village you come from in China. With this defining historical legend concerning Shannong and the discovery of tea, China has pretty much claimed squatters' rights with respect to who brought tea to the world. The thing about tea in Shannong's time, and pretty much all the way up to the Zhou Dynasty, was that it was more of a medicine than something you might make for yourself just to kick back and chill. Zhou Dynasty tea was supposedly very bitter, very heavy, even viscous. Tea as we know it in the time of the Zhou kings still had a long way to go. Shannong wrote of tea in his Ban Cao Jing, quote, Tea tastes bitter. Drinking it, one can think quicker, sleep less, move more nimbly, and see more clearly. End quote. Coming from someone the likes of Shannong, that's quite an endorsement. And Shannong, who would have carried a Chinese passport, by extension, passed on no small amount of glory to the motherland for being the one to discover such a miracle and wonder. I read Shandong left his earthly form in Hunan province at a place called Tea Hill, or Chalin. There must be some element of truth to this because I found Chalin on Google Maps. It's a little bit northeast of Changjiajie, so you know the divine farmer passed away in some beautiful surroundings. No mention if he went by natural causes or was poisoned to death. Shannong didn't call tea cha yet. Way back then, tea was called tu. Shannong wasn't kidding when he said it was bitter. People familiar with Chinese characters will note that tu, second tone, is written exactly like the character cha, but with one extra horizontal stroke. You can hardly notice it if you don't look closely, like ru and ren. The character tu looks very similar to cha, and it was natural that the character for tea, cha, ultimately be derived from this character tu. Users of the Liangshiqiu Chinese English Dictionary, my stalwart going back to the 1980s, will note tu is character 4931. It stands for the Sankis alarichias, a vegetable also called in Chinese ku cai. It's also known as sow thistle or smartwood. 
at least during the later Han, 23 to 220 CE, this character for Tu had a dual usage, this bitter vegetable and tea as well. In ancient writings where the character Tu comes up, like the Book of Songs and Book of Rites, the Shiqing and Li Qi, historians had to be sure what kind of Tu it was they were reading in the texts, the bitter-tasting vegetable or the ancient name for tea, which was also bitter. You know, there's always smoke everywhere you go in ancient China. Historians want to behold the fire, not the smoke. The hard part was simply to find the documents that had the character Tu. Then scholars would expend all their energies to figure out from the context, are they talking about cha, tea, or ku cai, bitter vegetable? Around the year 725, when cha forevermore replaced Tu as the word for tea, no one told the folks in Fujian province, and they kept on calling it Tu, or in that part of China, Tei. And in their various Min dialects, Tu came out sounding like tea. So when the first Western traders came to China, off the coast of Fujian, they asked, what's this stuff called? And their Hokkien and Hokkiu suppliers told them in their own dialects, hey, it's called Tei. And as far as the first Europeans were concerned, Tei it became. Now, down in Guangdong province, southernmost China, including the capital Guangzhou or Canton, they had heard about the name change when it happened, and therefore tea was cha down there. So everyone who ended up buying tea out of Canton knew it as cha, or some variation thereof. And all those like the Dutch and Portuguese who did their purchasing out of Xiamen, Fuzhou, Quanzhou, or wherever along the coast of Fujian, they knew it as tea. And since we in the West have the Dutch to thank for being the first Europeans to engage in the tea biz and bring it to the continent, we know it as tea rather than cha. They were the first to market, and as it often went in history, they got naming rights. I mentioned that in 59 BCE, during the time of the Western Han Emperor Xuan, there was a mention of tea in this Wangbao document that was discovered. Now, at the outset of the 2nd century there was another work discovered called the Shuo Wen Jiezi, and it came out during the reign of Eastern Han Emperor An Di. This Shuo Wen Jiezi, this was a Chinese dictionary to end all dictionaries that analyzed all the known Chinese characters to date. Tea was referred to as Ming and was described as buds picked from the Tu plant. There are no surviving copies of the Shuo Wen Jiezi. When are there ever? So many of these millennia-old documents perish throughout the ages, like it is for a lot of these Chinese ancient works. We know of the Shuo Wen Jiezi and about its contents from the documents and compendia that followed later on and referred to it and quoted it. But looking at this document from 121 AD, the time of Hadrian in Rome, we can at least deduce that the Chinese had figured out the buds were the best part of the tea plant, and that if you plucked them, more shoots would sprout forth. Today, some of the most prized and pricey green and white teas only contain the buds. Seems they also felt the same way 2,000 years ago. Rather than start yakking about the next thing on my mind, let's pull down the curtain and call it a night until next time. So thanks for listening, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from Los Angeles, California, the same city where the China History Podcast is produced, in fact. We share the same recording studio. You might want to check that one out. It's considered one of the best China History-flavored podcasts out there. 
Well, we managed to get this first episode out of the way. I cordially invite you to consider coming back next time for what I'm predicting will be another tasty episode of the Tea History Podcast.